Electricast. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, hello, friends, and welcome to episode 108 of the Burden of Command podcast. I'm your host, Earl Brienne. Today's guest is Mr. Jonathan Raymond. Jonathan is the author of Good Authority and the CEO of Refound. He learned the hard way what happens when you lose your way as an executive, the impacts it can have on your team, your business, and your life. More importantly, he learned how to turn that dynamic around how to drive performance by becoming more human with a team rather than less. He has worked with a wide variety of leaders and specializes in helping executives and senior leaders who are navigating periods of high growth or uncertainty. Now, see, this is one thing I love about doing a podcast like this, is getting to talk to people who aren't just talking about theory. These are people who have actually lived these experiences that many of you are facing right now, and is. Jonathan and I chat, I think you're going to hear through his shared story and his growth that there's hope for you, right? Nobody expects you to be the leader uh, that everybody wants to follow perfectly right off the bat. There's growth that happens. And so I hope with some of these guests I've had on here, as they've shared their stories, as they've opened up about how they were right where you could be right now and how they've changed. But that gives you a lot of hope uh, for, for your growth. So with that, I'm going to get out of the way here and let you get into this interview with Jonathan Raymond because he's got a great story to share, some great insight on how to turn things around, and I just think you're going to love everything he has to say. So without further ado, here's my interview with Jonathan Raymond. All right, everybody, welcome uh, to this episode of the Burden of Command podcast. As you heard in the pre-roll bio there, uh, my guest today is Jonathan Raymond. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. You bet. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, no, it's it's my pleasure. And, uh, you know, we'll get into your book, Good Authority, here in a little bit. Uh, but I really want to start you off where I start everybody. When you hear the phrase, burden of command, what does that mean to you? For me, I would say it means uh, that there's always going to be context that you have that others don't. There's always going to be uh, pain in some form or another that you feel that others don't. They're, now, they're going to feel pain that you don't feel, uh, but there's a loneliness to that, right? There's a loneliness whether you're, a, you know, you're at really at the top of the org chart or top of the chain of command in a business or organization or you're, you know, in charge of your team. Uh, when you're in when you're in that command seat, uh, there are things that come with the territory that you have to bear alone. 
It doesn't mean you can't talk to people about them, but you've got to bear those things alone. Yeah. No, I, I like that. And, you know, it, it ties into, as I mentioned, kind of in our, our pre-show workup here, you know, I like to do my homework on guests. And I, one of the things I like to do is go find other podcasts they've been on, other videos that they've done. And I found one, and, and this is why I love this answer, because it ties into something I just heard you speak about, even though you spoke about it, I think it was in 2018. You were giving this talk at a conference, and you said something about we we need more Yodas and less Supermen. Mm. <laughs> do, do you remember that talk? I do. I, I say things like that a lot. Yeah, uh, no, I love yeah, it. You know, there's a there. You know, in our in our uh, teaching, we have three. So we do a lot of leadership coaching. We do a lot of work with organizations uh, that are going through periods of growth and change. And uh, what we have found over and over again. And there's a lot of reasons why we can get into why, but most organizations, all the ones I've seen are filled with people, well-intentioned, smart, capable people who operate uh, far too much in superhero mode. And we can talk about what that means and not nearly enough in Yoda mode. Yeah. And so uh, that's, uh, you know, we just see that over and over again. And the cost that that has for an organization is tremendous. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead. Like, like when you say superhero mode, what, what do you mean? So to me, like, you know, let's think back to Superman, right? As one of our sort of archetypal su superheroes, right? What, is, what does Superman do, right? Superman uh, is never not available, right? Jumps in on every fire, you know, will spin the world backwards if he has to, uh, to save the day. That's the, 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 the archetypal nature, right? Is always there, always available, you know, never lets uh, the world go down uh, uh, on his watch or her watch. And that's a beautiful quality, right, in a certain way. But what does Superman, right, if we, since we're talking Superman from that archetype, like, what do they not do, right? They never coach anybody, right? They never say, hey, well, while, you know, let's talk, let's do a lessons learned. Let's do a retrospective on uh, how you ended up in that situation and what you might do differently next time. They never do that right? because their, their identity is wrapped up in being the one to save the day. Uh, where if you contrast that with Yoda, right, and most people are familiar with Yoda, not everybody is, I, I have learned over the years, uh, but most people are familiar with Yoda, that Yoda asks questions, Yoda creates space, Yoda doesn't save the day for his student or students every single opportunity, right? There's learning that happens, there's a space between Yoda and the the main character, yeah. right? It's and And it doesn't mean he's not capable, it doesn't mean... He can't step in and kick some ass if he needs to, but that's not how he sees his role. And when I see executives and leaders these days, what, they're not doing it intentionally, uh, but they're, they, they are operating one to two levels beneath their title and it's harming them, it's harming their teams, and it's harming the organization. Yeah. Well, and the one thing that, that I love, again, I 100% agree with everything you said, but the one thing I loved about that example is, you know, the difference there really with Yoda is, uh, you know, he, he let Luke fail, right? That's right. I mean, he, he let him learn those lessons the hard way instead of really like holding his hand through it. And, you know, you see, and I know you mentioned some people don't know Yoda. Well, nobody needs that negativity in their life. So we're not going to pretend those people exist. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but, you know, and I think that's an important quality for leaders to possess is that ability to, to not scoop in and save the day. Let these people learn some lessons. Let them learn from failing, right? 
And and one of the things that I when I when I introduce these ideas or when you know our coaching team does uh, is that one of the natural questions is when like when can I do that? Everything feels like a fire. Everything feels urgent. You know when and and so you know there, you have to learn to architect those moments. And sometimes you can't do it in the heat of the moment. But 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 what you can do is to say, hey, this is one of those moments where I want to stretch out and actually you know, sort of talk about it and really you know, kind of understand what's happening so you can learn from it. Right now, we got to get this out to the client, but let's could reconvene later today and, you know, spend 15, 20 minutes talking about it. You always can do that, right? And the and, and, and it's in making those micro investments of your time that makes an enormous difference to somebody feeling the most important thing for them to feel as an employee is that they're learning. And they're growing. If you ask people on your team, and they, if you can get honest answers, you say, "Hey, one to five, how much do you feel like you're growing and learning in your in your job here?" If they give you an answer that's five or a four, they're going to stick around for a long time. If it's three or or lower, they're already looking for another job. Oh yeah, no, a hundred percent. That was one of the things I had to drive through to people during, uh, you know, and it, it, the numbers have kind of settled out a little bit, but there was all these statistics about how quickly millennials were switching jobs, right? I think mm. at one point in time it got to like every two and a half years or something like that. Right. Was, well, you know, th that was exactly it, right? It's like if you listen to what millennials were saying, it was what you just said. They didn't feel valued. They didn't feel like they belonged in the organization. They didn't feel like they could contribute or grow. And so, of course, they're looking for other jobs, right? Right. And and the thing is that people uh, people take sort of whole cloth responses to things. And, and this is sort of the bane of my existence is like we don't ask really good questions, right? So so you, you can observe that phenomenon and, and what people, their initial response would be, which I think is, is insane, is they're like, well, millennials are entitled and they just want to have, they just want to be promoted every five minutes. And they just want to, and it's like, you could look at it that way, or you could ask some better questions and say, hey, what's behind that? Why, why, why does it seem like they are, you know, constantly seeking promotion opportunity? What if what they're really asking for, they don't really know how to ask for which is growth and development. And, the, and because they don't know how to ask for it, and because it's not clear how to ask for it in your business or your culture, because you haven't trained people how to ask for it, they ask for a promotion, they ask for you know, things that are, that are outsized or inappropriate relative to where they are. Doesn't mean that there isn't something to learn inside of what they're asking for, but people can, they just kind of throw the whole thing out like, oh, well, they're entitled. Well, you know, maybe you could look at it as they're entitled or maybe we're closed-minded. Right. So, yep. you know, the answer is somewhere in there. <laughs> no, exactly. Exactly. Sorry. You, you've got a, a great book out. Uh, we've thank you mentioned. Yeah. No, I love this book. I, you know, and again, I'm, I'm a real big fan of, of book designs. I've mentioned a few times on here when a book really stands out and I just love it. It's, it's a nice, simple design, but it's very mm. eye catching. So, so I love mm. the, the color contrast and stuff on here, but, uh, Good well, I gotta, I gotta say something about that because, Go for it. Uh, because rarely do people comment on those things. So I love that you did, and I, I have to comment because we spent so much time thinking about, you know, the, the texture and what the quality of paper was going to be, and the design and how did it fit in or whatever. And, and I, and it was, it was my, that is my first book. I'm working on my second book now, but that process was super interesting to me and really understanding kind of the back end of the way pub, the public publishing industry work. So I love that it, that it spoke to you. Uh, it spoke to me, obviously, but I, I always love when people 
uh, uh, pick up those high, those details. Yeah, no, again, I love it. And like, you know, listeners, when, when you get a copy, and I'm going to say when, because I'm going to put that out there because you need a copy of this book, you'll see exactly what we're talking about. Like, you know, you mentioned the texture and the feel of the cover. Like, you know, I love this because I can see myself flipping through this book quite often and I don't feel like I've got to worry about it, like falling apart. Um, mm. So, yeah, so I, I like that. But it's it's uh, good authority how to become the leader your team is waiting for. And I love that because, you know, first of all, thank you for using the word authority because I run into and and saying good authority because I run into a lot, you know, my background being in the Marines, a lot of times when people hear me start talking about authority, they automatically start envisioning, you know, the, the cursing and stomping and slobbering and spitting drill instructor when I say authority. Mm. And that's not what authority means, right? Right. Yeah, and, and I think we, we've really done a disservice uh, culturally because we don't have a lot of good models for what does authority look like that's good, right? We have some models for what good, good authority looks like when it's mean and slobbering, right? And then we have some models for authority when it's like, when it's like spineless, right? When it's just like too nice and too, like, too accommodating. And there are very few models of authority that really kind of occupy that sweet spot who are firm, but fair, mm -hmm. right? Like hold people accountable, but give them a chance, right? Have the developmental conversation. Like there's not that many models for that, right? That's why I picked Yoda in the book. Cause it was one example that I thought, you know, most people well, for, for our purposes today, or we're saying everybody knows Yoda, um, <laughs> but the, that, that everyone could be like, Oh, right. That's what it looks like. But they're not that many. And, and most people have, frankly, bad experiences with people in authority in, early on in their life, formative experiences with parents who misused their authority, teachers, religious figures, uh, you know, coaches, we, we, first bosses. I, it's very, very rare where I meet somebody who doesn't have uh, some form of traumatic experience. But then we go to work and we don't talk about that. Right. Yeah. And we go to work and we try and we create hierarchical structure. We create situations where people have to deal with authority, but we don't give them any help for how to do that, for how to work through uh, some of their past. And so, uh, you know, you can't really build a business around that. That'd be kind of a tough thing to sell. But it but it's got to be part of the conversation. If it's not part of the conversation, we're just we're missing way too much. Yeah. Again, I agree. You know, and that's one thing you know, always. I always hate the kind of representation that, that military leadership gets in movies and pop culture references and all that, because sure, that, that screaming, yelling, that that's usually a drill instructor. And there's a, there's a specific reason that individual is acting that way at that time. But when mm -hmm. you get into, when you get into what we call the fleet, the, the, Sure, some people never make that transition, and that's their leadership style, and nobody likes working for those people, and, and they get stuff done at the bare minimum standard, even in the Marine Corps. The people who have the most success, and I think this is kind of what you're saying here too, the people who have the most success know when to turn that on and turn that off. They they know that's when right. to have fun. They know when to, you know, let's get together and have a beer, but they also know when to smash you when you need smashed. And I think that that's, uh, you know, I, I don't come from a military background, but I've talked with a lot of people over the years since I wrote that book. And I have heard stories, my personal stories and sort of more general. Uh, and, I, and I know this to be the case that the military uh, has evolved also tremendously and is on the leading edge of a lot of this stuff. I mean, I would love to have 
Uh, we almost did some work for uh, for some folks uh, last year, and it didn't work out timing wise with COVID and everything. But uh, the, I think the you know military people are keenly aware of the role that authority plays, and they are also struggling with the same things, right? Of how do we evolve our culture? How do we evolve leadership to attract and retain uh, the right people uh, in our various organizations? And so you know, I'm I'm not somebody who I don't I don't hold that archetype. But like as you said, you know, I, I I do a lot more work in Silicon Valley than I do you know in in with military folks, mm-hmm. uh, and I see a lot a lot of really poor leadership in tech uh, from people who uh, you know you'd like to think would know better. Well, <laughs> and that's it, right? You would you would like to think they would know better, but you know if everybody knew better, people like you and I uh, that do leadership right. development wouldn't have a job. <laughs> That's right. It would be really hard for me to pay my mortgage. Yeah. Well, so one of the things I love about this book, besides the design and all that, is right out of the gate. And and again, listeners, I'm going to tell you right now, this book is worth the price of admission just in the first few pages because you've got this thing right up front that you call the Good Authority Manifesto. Hmm. And number one just like screams out to me big time. The presence to name the things that most people overlook. So what does that mean to you when, when you put that on paper? The so many, I'm, I'm, I'm a Occam's razor or kind of simple solution type of person. I'm always looking for like, what's the fastest way to get to the results that we want. And, and what I've found personally and what I've observed is that the fastest way to get to the right results uh, is to be able to name the thing that's happening in the room that people don't want to talk about or don't know how to talk about. And I, and I see a lot of my role and you know, with clients and, 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 you know, regardless of how that manifests is to encourage people, Hey, I know you don't know why that's happening. I don't, I know you don't know how people are going to react to you calling it out, but you got to call it out. Now there's a way to do it in a way that's open. There's a way that to do it. That's not accusatory or not shaming anybody. But if you don't name the elephant in the room, you're going to spend the next hour talking around it. And that's not efficient. That's not smart. And we don't have time for that. And so uh, a lot of that, that's the reason why I put it first, right, is the presence to name it. And that's hard to do in the moment, right? Everybody's so busy. We're so overwhelmed with technology and information. It's hard to step back, whether it's in a team meeting or in, or in a one-on-one to say, hey, wait a second. Something I know, something I think I noticed is happening right now in our conversation, right? That's a game changer in a relationship, right? Think about it in a marriage, right? Instead of back and forth, you know, arguing about something or, or silence about something to just name, hey, I noticed that, you know, whenever this subject comes up, uh, it seems like, you know, we, you know, we're used to having such a really easy, open conversation, but something about that conversation feels hard. I'm wondering why that is. Why do you think it is? Yeah. Right. Just to be able to name that changes the whole dynamic. Well, yeah, and it's critical, right? I mean, it's, uh, I believe the the lack of doing what you said there is why we have a lot of the issues we have in the modern workforce today. You know, we're all of a sudden uh, looking around the boardroom or, or even just the, the meeting room and, and seeing, well, you know, we don't have that many women sitting here. We don't have that many mm. people of color sitting here. Why did nobody name that earlier than yesterday? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's the, and there's not a lot of training for that, right? Like where's the training for how to make meta observations 
nobody, you know, like what class did you learn that in high school, Earl? You didn't. I no. didn't have that class in high school. I didn't have it in college, didn't have it in law school, never got on the job training. Like it doesn't exist, right? Yep. And so we have this, this huge terrain of human consciousness that we're basically ignoring, right? As, and it's like the most important thing uh, to be able to do is to name what we see. Yeah. No, I love it. I love it. Um, so now I'm not going to name every one of these uh, pieces of the manifesto for listeners because, again, I want you to go out and, and get this book. Um, but one of the other ones I really like here is the generosity to challenge them to go a little bit further. Mm. And and this is the I'll, I'll tell you why I like that one. Right. Because, again, I'm, I, I, I'm going back to my time in, in the Marines. That was one of the things that was really valuable to the Marine Corps was teaching us Marine Corps history and not just history, but teaching us about people like, uh, like John Bassalone, who uh, mm. ends up picking up a, a machine gun and resting on his forearm and getting burnt severely so he could protect, uh, protect his troops. And, mm. and it was, the idea wasn't, Oh, look, look, this guy who suffered. It was look what he was able to push through to accomplish something great. That's right. And it was coming to that understanding, like when, you know, when the, the, when the paper jams in the printer, it's not the worst thing that could happen. You, <laughs> you have resilience, right? So, you know, what is to you, what does that mean? Uh, well, I happen to live a few miles down the road from Barcelona Road. Oh, there you go. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, that's not too far from where I live in Southern California. Um, so he's got his name <laughs> as he should on a uh, on a highway exit, nice. um, among other things. Um, but uh, you know, to me, the you know, we often interpret being pushed as you know, we, we, we it's sort of like we were talking about before with authority. We have we tend to have most people have negative associations to being pushed, right? To to being pushed to go further. But if you if we think about that more broadly, like if we think about fitness goals or health goals or financial goals or relationship relationship goals, we actually value the people who push us to go further, right? We pay people to do that. Mm -hmm. But somehow, somewhere, some way at work, we, we lost sight of that. And what, the, what I want to get people to think about is as a manager, a people leader, we use the phrase people leader instead of manager because we think that's what it's about. Right. It's not about managing people. It's about leading them. But for us, the, the, if I'm an employee, if I'm a direct report of a manager, frankly, that's what, I'm, that's what I'm paying you for. I know it sounds like I work for you, but I'm paying you to push me further. And from the manager's perspective, the act of generosity, right? It's not an act of meanness. It's not an act of pushing somebody because you have power. It's an act of generosity to say, hey, here's where you are. I think you could be here. How, what would that look like? How would you get there? How would, what would you do next, right? And there's a way to do that. And it's not that hard. We do, it's all about intention. So much of the things we've been talking about so far. It's an act of generosity. And those are the people that reflect back who you who people reflect back on and say, you know what? I had this one boss once and she would always, I don't know how she did this, but she would always take the time to circle back around with me and she gave me this feedback. And at the time it was kind of like, oh man, here she comes again. But it was so, it, it really made a difference for me because I really learned this lesson and I wouldn't have learned it any other way. That's an act of generosity. And there's not enough of that happening in our modern organizations. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And it's, it, and I love that example because it's true. We, we never know 
we never know today what that one piece of feedback is going to lead to tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And and it can be critically life-changing for the person. Like, uh, Colin Powell, uh, he loves to share a story about that happening to him early in his career, where he, he had one of his soldiers got uh, into trouble, and as a lieutenant, he gets mad, and, like, he just yells and screams and curses this kid out. Mm. And he had one of his superior officers overhears him. And basically comes by and says, you know, never do that again. Hmm. And then when they had time to sit down and talk, he counseled him on his anger issues and all that. And then at his next performance review, he put a comment on his uh, performance evaluation that says, because he had seen uh, Colin had had internalized the, the information. And he said, young Lieutenant Powell has a severe temper but makes a concerted effort to keep it under control. <laughs> and this was at the very beginning of Colin's career. And he says, to this day, I still have that piece of feedback to help guide me because I know I have a severe temper issue. Now, right. you, see, you see him today, nobody would ever associate a temper issue with Colin Powell because of that right. piece of information. That's right. Yeah. yeah I mean, you know, that's, uh, I think it's, it, there's a humility in that, right? Which is, and I think it's it's there's something we're getting something wrong uh, in our culture in our culture is in that we don't embrace that very simple reality that like we when we've got a bad habit or a bad behavior right you don't you you never you don't excise that like you don't remove it from the body right like yeah. if you struggle with insecurity or you struggle with arrogance or you struggle with a temper or you struggle with like you know being like a perfectionist like you're not going to get rid of those behaviors or habits. That's not what authenticity is. Authenticity is knowing that you have that habit or behavior and, and exactly as Colin Powell did, working hard to not let it out, right? Yeah. Working hard to not let it impact other people in negative ways. Yep, exactly. Well, and that's why I like, so this will be uh, the last piece of the manifesto here that I want to touch on. Uh, but you have it labeled as number nine on here, the transparency to share what you feel with each member of your team. And I think that ties in really well with what we're talking about here, because like you said, authenticity, that that's it is, is that transparency and being able to share. And I like the fact that you use the word feel because a lot of leaders feel uncomfortable with feelings, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. That's right. Yeah. yeah and, and, these days, I think one of the things that's been really interesting with COVID, um, regardless of how you feel about, you know, all the stuff that goes with it, is that it has put managers in this position that they didn't, a lot of them didn't want to be in, but it has put them in this position, people leaders, where they have to talk about feelings. They have to talk about, in some way, they've got to find a way to talk about what's actually happening for people. And so, you know, imagine you tried to lead a team for the last 18 months and you weren't willing to talk about or at least listen to how people feel on one level, like you would be a really miserable person, right? You've had to do that over the last 18 months, and that's a good thing. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. All right, so moving on through the book here. I love uh, – I, I always love books that are broken up into parts because it gives me a <laughs> – it gives me, me too. <laughs> a way to come back and, and really pick up, right? Um, so I love this, but, but in part one, 
And I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about this. You've got a chapter titled The Employee Engagement Fallacy. What is that all about? The employee engagement fallacy comes out of a lot of data, not necessarily wrong data, but a lot of data over the years that's been framed as employee engagement. So we look at your survey people and Gallup is the most recognized of these. And they come out with the same, it's the same survey results every year or however mm-hmm. often they do it. And the results are always, they always say the same thing, which is 70% of the workforce is disengaged. So seven out of every 10 people are disengaged. And of those seven, they say four of those people are sort of neutral, kind of phoning it in. And three of them are actively working to undermine the goals that you have. Think about that, right? Seven out of 10, four of them neutral, three of them actively trying to undermine. So that's the data that's been out there forever. We call that an employee engagement problem. Baloney. (laughs) Got nothing to do with it. That's a manager engagement problem. That's a leader engagement problem. And we're we're just blaming the victim, right? You're talking the the people who are, you think seven out of 10 people want to hate their job? Want (laughs) to be miserable? No, of course not. That's a manager engagement problem, a leader problem, and a culture problem. But we're measuring the wrong thing, right? You, you, You were measuring it at the level of the victim. Right. And that's it's just a silly way to do it. So uh, we're trying to turn that around. Yeah, no, I, I like that. And I'm real curious, like when you bring that to an organization's attention, uh, you know, how do they receive that? Do they they understand what you're trying to get through there and, and take that ownership or do they still push back with the data? Well, the, I guess it's probably a, a, an unfair sample because they called me or they called Refound. Uh, but generally speaking, I would say these days there's a lot more recognition of like, hey, this is our problem. Not that it's not it's not that we can't find good people; it's that we're not leading them well. And it doesn't mean that th- that there aren't individual people out there that are not a right fit for an organization. Of course, that happens. Uh, but you know, with our clients, I mean, we don't we don't we don't take a check unless we're aligned on that. So otherwise, we're wasting our time and their money. Love it. No, no, and that's a good practice and good point there. So um, now w- when you see that in an organization, you know, because I, I, I kind of know a little bit what, what my experiences have been, or at least my perspective, but how much of it is, is their hiring practices? How much of it is their leadership development program? Or is it a good combination of both? Uh, most of the organizations that I would see follow the pattern that they uh, they promote technical people into leadership roles because they know the technicals of that particular area, whether it's in engineering, software, hardware, systems, or sales, or finance, doesn't matter. Uh, You know, a gap opens up, somebody leaves, and they need a leader for that team. And it's hard. It's hard to be difficult to be out far enough ahead so that you do, you know, hiring for that role, whether it's internal or external. So we make a convenient choice, which is, well, you know, we have Michael on the team and he really knows this area. Like, let's make him the manager of this team. And uh, we have not done a lot of our homework of whether or not Michael's going to be a good manager. Does he want to be a manager? Are there any other opportunities for him to advance that don't involve leading a team of people? Because maybe he would take those, but he's just taking this one because it's the only way in the organization to make more money or to get more visibility. So there's a bunch of questions that we need to answer uh, inside of that. Um, so that's that's part of it. The other piece of it, which, you know, I think is changing these days, is that uh, we take somebody, we make them a manager, and we do this incredibly awful, horrible, terrible, inhumane thing to them. We put them into manager training. That is a terrible thing to do to a human being. But we do that. We do this over and over again. And uh, we're trying to fix that by getting rid of manager training because 
manager training is uh, is where future leaders uh, die. Uh, it is not a good place to be. Uh, it, it makes the task of leading a team of people see so much seem so much more uh, nuts and bolts and bureaucratic and and driving results and objectives and so much less than it needs to be about the human being and the relationships and and how you talk to people. And so, which is why, you know, in good authority, I said, hey, this is not a business book. This is a book about relationships because that's the thing that ails most businesses is the relationships inside of them. <laughs> Again, I love it when I hear that word relationships and, and uh, my listeners probably just like d- turn the volume down because they know what I'm getting ready to say because it seems it comes up just about every episode now. But I, I agree with you 100%. That's what I say on here. That's what I say in classes. Leadership is just another relationship. Mm-hmm. So I love that. And, and you know, I agree with you because we run into the same thing here at the Leadership Phalanx. We'll go into an organization and we'll, we'll look at some of these same problems and, and see exactly that. And we'll see that they don't have a leadership development program, like, period. And if they do, it's like, hey, read this book and then that's it. We're not going to talk about mm-hmm. it. We just want you to read this book. And and it's it's like you just said there with the the fictitious Michael, uh, yeah, they're great. They're great coders. They're great programmers. They're great this. They're great that. But that doesn't give you the people skills necessary to be a great leader. And and then you wonder why you have people working for this individual that don't want to work for this individual. And mm-hmm. and like you said, I think we're doing them a grave disservice by first putting them in the role, and second, giving them substandard tools to be able to to do the job with that's right and then you know and then lastly how does that show up right to let's go back to colin powell for example do are we including that person's abilities as a people leader wherever they are on their on their evolution there are we including that in their incentives are we including that in their compensation are we including that in their advancement or is that this sort of like addendum to the performance review we only really care about the numbers and then there's a little afterthought down here around like you know, Michael should be better at talking like what depends, you know, whichever one you measure, well, that's the one that's going to get attention, right? Mm-hmm. So if it's part of comp and and my evolution as a leader, I'm going to pay a lot more attention to it. I'm going to seek out training and coaching and I'm going to real actively work on that. But if, it, but if you don't care about it, if you're going to promote me and give me my full bonus and give me the advancement, even though I, I suck at those things, well, what's the likelihood that I'm going to really invest in them? Mm. <laughs> that that's yeah that's powerful yeah i like that like you know just imagine if your your bonus was tied to the percentage of people on your team who quote were engaged right yeah, yeah. how about that yeah <laughs> you see that? you see that number change real quick i do believe yeah exactly i like that i like um in part 2 you talk about the art of cultural listening what's mm. that about it, it's connected actually to something we talked about before about naming the things that other people uh, avoid uh, or, or uh, whether that's actively or passively. And the art of cultural listening is really about uh, listening for what people aren't saying, right? Listening for the messages that are, that are, that are coming to you as a leader. You know, I'll, as I'm working with CEOs, you know, I'll try to, I try to, you know, share this experience with them as a CEO myself, but also try to, kind of turn their mind onto this idea that you're not going to get great information most of the time about your own behavior. You may get some content, you may get some feedback, 
But what you're probably not going to get is the real impact that that behavior, that your behavior is having. Um, you've got to look more proactively for that. And one of the things that I will often counsel leaders to do is to say, look, pick the habit that you think uh, is is one of your habits that you need to work on. Let's say you tend to, uh, you know, you're, you push the team into like, you know, moving too fast on things sometimes in your mind, right? That's your, sometimes you, you, you push the team too hard on, you know, deadlines sometimes. And you think to yourself, oh yeah, I know I do that about myself. Yeah, I should probably work on that. That is an ineffective growth strategy as a leader. An effective growth strategy as a leader is to say, wow, if I'm getting feedback that I'm doing that some of the time, my cultural listening is I'm going to go, I bet you I'm doing that 10 times more than I think. I bet you I'm doing that in a way that's 10 times more impactful to the downside than some voice in my head wants me to believe. That's, a, that's how I'm going to organize my behavior. I'm going to organize my behavior on the fact that, that on the belief that it's 10 times worse than I think it is. Because if I'm getting any amount of information about myself and my behavior, it's probably coming through a bunch of filters. It's probably coming from a bunch of people, even if they're well-intentioned, even if they're really smart, they're, they are calculating what version of the truth they can give to me. So with all of those things, you got your cultural listening, you have to learn to interpret the data through, through a better and more effective lens. Uh, that's what cultural listening is about. Mm. Yeah. And, and I like that again. And, and one of the things that, that I like about kind of what you're saying there is, is being, being aware of the things that are going on. Um, Cause it always amazes me how many leaders believe that their impact on the people following them like ends as soon as that person leaves the building and right. they, they never really think about, you know, if I lead them poorly, if I treat them poorly at work, if I'm not listening to them, if I'm not engaging them, if I'm not doing all these things, if I'm not creating that environment uh, where, you know, they, they have a happy, healthy, productive work life that bleeds over into, you know, their car trip home and how many people they flip off that bleeds over into their work life. And, and even, you know, their marriage at times, if, if they, go yes. home unhappy. They're not going to treat their spouse well. And, you know, you have this immense impact on people's lives as a leader that most leaders just don't take seriously. That's right. I was talking with a, a leader in an organization that has, you know, several hundred thousand employees. And he, he said something that, that really took me back, which was, which was true. He said, look, if we got better at this as a, as a group of leaders, uh, we could have a, a, a major impact on our society, mm-hmm. right? And that's, and he's right, right? Like the ripple effect uh, that, and that's one of our three values at Refound, the third one is rippling out. And it's because when you when you engage in these behaviors, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of clean energy and holistic health and, you know, all kinds of other ways of thinking about solving the problems of the world and, and, and tend to be in the mainstream most of the time. But imagine we could measure the health of a business by the amount of domestic violence its employees engage in, mm. by the amount of al- alcoholism, by the contributions that, that those employees make to their community, right? That's how we should be measuring the health of a business, in addition to its ability to make a profit, right? And those other things, right? But uh, I think we're in that, we're in that cut right now of changing the way we think about some things. Uh, and that's the particular place where, where I decided I was going to make my career. 
Yeah, no, I love it. And keep doing that work because we need more people doing it because, you know, I mean, it's true. I mean, I, it's, it's a hundred percent true. We've talked about a lot of it here. Um, you know, but the, 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 the old master Zig Ziglar used to tell a story in, in his speeches where, you know, he would say, you know, Johnny, Johnny had a bad day at work. So on the way home, he like flipped off a car, but you know, he got distracted and he hit a curb and that made him even more mad. And, you know, he tells his story and mm. like, he says, you know, he, he gets home and the dar- a dog starts barking at him and he hauls off and kicks the dog. Right. He said, well, mm. his boss could have saved a lot of trouble and just drove over to Johnny's house and kicked the dog for him. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and it's, it's yeah. that sort of thing. So, you know, uh, leaders out there just, you know, really take that, take that seriously. Like, like think about the impact that you and your leadership is really having, not just in the organization, but on society as a whole. I don't think that's, yeah, I agree with you. I don't think that's too big of a, of a label to put on it. We could really change society mm-hmm. just by changing our leadership and our organizations. Yes. Um, so again, and I love your willingness to take on words that, uh, uh, have negative connotations here because mm. uh, later in in part two you you have a, a chapter titled micromanagement reimagined and I'm assuming mm. as soon as I say the word micromanage like a lot of my listeners butts puckered big time mm. <laughs> so, so so how do you reimagine micromanaging uh, Google did a, a really uh, uh, interesting study uh, some while ago with all of their employees. And they asked them, and I'm probably butchering it a little bit, but this was the gist. They said, uh, do you want to be micromanaged? Uh, and they said, uh, no, no, thank you. I don't want to be micromanaged. Uh, do you want to be, and they phrased the question in a way, do you want to be microdeveloped? Yeah, yes, yes, please. Like I want to be, I want to be developed constantly when it comes to my career and my learning and my growth. And those, I don't want to be micromanaged, but I want to be micro helped. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, and I think that's the distinction, you know, when we go into our version of that is when we go into organizations and we ask people, we say, Hey, are you getting feedback from, are you, do you get feedback day to day? Everybody raises their hand and then we say, okay, do you get developmental feedback? All those hands go down. Right. So Mm -hmm. it's not a feedback problem, right? If you think of feedback, I was an old guitar player back in the day, right? Like you stick an instrument in the wrong location next to a uh, amplifier, you're going to get feedback, right? What are you supposed to do with that feedback? That's a different matter, right? And the what or people are giving feedback all the time, whether they call it feedback or not. But what they're not doing is they're not putting that feedback in the context of development. Why does this matter? Why is this important? How does this connect to some theme that we've been talking about? How can you use this feedback to become a better human being, to be more effective at work, to be more effective in your life? Uh, that's the difference between feedback and developmental feedback. And that's what it means to reimagine micromanagement. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that completely. And, you know, and, and it's just, I think in my experience, again, we kind of talk about uh, training a little bit already, but in my experience is we have a lot of people in these roles that don't, they really don't know how to identify those, they, those deficiencies Okay, let me rephrase that. They know how to identify those deficiencies, but they don't know how to identify those points of improvement on those deficiencies. And so they don't know how to have that conversation in a meaningful Mm. way. Is that something you've ran into with your work? Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think one of the things, uh, you know, Cal Newport's been making the rounds again uh, for his latest book. I forget what it's called. 
it might be world without email or something like that. Um, but you know, our world is not set up for having meaningful conversations anymore, right? Like we don't, we rarely, I, I like the phone. My team knows me as someone who like picks up the phone and calls. Um, but you know, we've, we've set up our world in such a way that we've decided whether we did it intentionally or not is, is another matter, but we decided that the way we should work is a lot of back and forth messaging, right? Mm through whatever, you know, Gmail, email, Microsoft tools, Exchange, Slack, whatever. Then now it, it does, it has upsides, right? But one of the downsides, and it's a big one, is that we have increasingly lost our ability to have open, unstructured conversations with one another, which are the conversations that actually matter to the heart of the human being. And so we're, we've, we have, we've, for a lot of reasons, but one of them is the way we've organized our workplaces is that we've decided on a way of working that uh, certainly has some upsides, but we're not, we're not, we're really paying the cost uh, for that. And uh, that cost is enormous. That is a fact. That is an absolute fact. Well, folks, again, uh, we're talking with Jonathan Raymond, author of Good Authority, How to Become the Leader Your Team is Waiting For. And, uh, you know, part three uh, has a lot of great content in it. We, we talked about uh, more Yoda, less Superman already. Uh, it, he talks about uh, the five employee archetypes. And I really want to go ahead and, and leave that fruit kind of hanging on the tree for the most part. Uh, because, listeners, again, I want you to go out and pick up a copy of this book. This is one of those you need in your leadership development arsenal. Uh, so go grab a copy and have it by your side for quick references as you're trying to have some of these conversations and make some of these changes that Jonathan, I've been talking about through the course of this discussion. And with that, Jonathan, we've been talking here for a little over 40, 43 minutes or so here, and it has been fantastic. And we covered a lot of ground on the book, but we left a lot there. But is there anything that you really want to to leave listeners with before we uh, before we work to close out here? Uh, I think you know, it's been a really a great conversation. I'll, I'll just share, you know, as you pick up the book and we'll put a link to uh, the show notes. We'll put some stuff at refound.com slash burden of command uh, where you can get our one on one meeting guide as a PDF. So that's something you can explore uh, to help you set up these conversations, how to have them in an effective way. And then also a video course uh, where we have a discount code there, uh, which you can check out, uh, which is really on what we talk about in part three of the book, which is the accountability dial, which is the, the methodology for how do you start and manage those conversations. So I hope people will dig into the book and, uh, um, and you'll find, uh, you know, I think you'll find it really practical. It's one of the things that I set out to do was to create a book that was really practical and not and there. Of course, it has theory in it. Uh, but that was mostly what I was going for. So you can find more at refound.com slash burden of command. And then also that'll take you to refound.com. Uh, and you can poke around and you can always reach us at hello at refound.com and you'll get a response from a human being. Outstanding. No, I like that. And and as, as uh, you mentioned, we'll have the uh, the links to those stuff here. And, and uh, thank you for uh, setting up that page for the listeners there. I really appreciate that. And listeners, go uh, take advantage of that. Um, now. In the beginning, if I heard you right, uh, you mentioned you're working on a second book. I am. Yeah. Okay. When, when's that supposed to come out? Do you know? Uh, probably. I'm turning fifty in October of 2022. 
Okay. And uh, it's, it's going to come out before then. That's in the next 16, 17 months. Okay. Well, look, um, I've really thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. It's been great. We covered a lot of territory. I think we uh, left folks with a lot. And uh, I think there's a lot more to get out of this book. Uh, but, you know, I, I want to extend uh, an open invitation when the next book comes out. I'd love to have you come back on the show and uh, let, let's discuss that one as well. That would be great. I'll let you know as soon as we get a little closer in and uh, we'll continue the conversation. Thanks, Earl. Yeah, no, I love it. I love it. And folks, again, uh, take advantage of those links. Take advantage of uh, those opportunities that Jonathan and his team have put together for us. Uh, I'm going to say it again because I really do like this book. Go grab a copy. You know, you, you've heard me do a lot of interviews and talk about a lot of books on here. And, you know, there's probably been, you know, four or five of those that I've been this adamant about. Well, this is in in that club. Uh, it's just really well put together. It's really easy to reference and get a lot of good information out of it real quick. And, um, you know, the other thing, and I didn't mention this before, but the one thing I do love about how Jonathan puts this together is there's a lot of uh, kind of storytelling in here. So this isn't just, uh, well, I believe or that there's some real examples and some real, real world scenarios. And you see this stuff at work in the book. And that always uh, means a lot to me. So again, mm. Jonathan, thank you for your time. I really appreciate you being with me and my listeners today. Likewise. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. And listeners, thank you for uh, spending uh, some time with uh, Jonathan Raymond and uh, I this afternoon or whenever you're listening to this. Uh, you know how to reach out to me, burden.command at gmail.com. Uh, hit me with any ideas for shows. If you got an idea for guests, if there's a book that you're reading, you'd like to hear me interview that author as well. Uh, hit me up and we'll work on making that happen for you. Uh, keep with the rating, reviewing and subscribing uh, to the show and share it out with folks, you know. Uh, so my guests like Jonathan can have their ideas spread further and reach more people and make a bigger impact on the world. Uh, with that, again, thank you for your time as a listener. I really appreciate it and I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us, from renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Pack podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, that's no, that's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big hole. On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid. Electric acid.